0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio, I'm Greg, and uh, we've got a couple different stories today. So first, you you lucky dogs get to have two GameStop stories in a row. We're going to be talking about GameStop getting into the comic book selling market, for whatever reason. Uh, then we're going to kind of cover, over the last uh, few weeks, there's been a few stories coming out about the Atari VCS, which I've covered numerous times. And like I talk about with the Billy Mitchell stuff and with the Atari VCS stuff, I don't do it just to get views. So I'm not, I don't milk these things out, but a lot has been happening with the Atari uh, VCS lately, which I want to talk about mostly their PR department and how they seem to want to attack the critics. Uh, and then we're going to, uh, I've decided we're going to have a very uplifting story at the end. We're going to talk about a new controller Being brought to us by Microsoft, which is um, a way for disabled gamers to be able to play if they aren't able to play with traditional controllers. And it was just a really, really awesome story. And I'm going to try to do that more often because, you know, sometimes the stories that interest us and that we get into are very much the stories that are. uh, have drama in them. You know, we're attracted to that. But I'd like to get to a point where, yes, we still do that because that's still interesting, but I'm going to go out of my way to try to find uplifting stories when i can too much like the microsoft one and to give them a lot of credit for that because i can't imagine something like that's necessarily going to be a profit generator for them you know i don't think that's something that's going to make them money but i still think it was the right thing to do and i think it was an incredible thing for them to do and i would love to see the other companies follow suit uh because allowing more people to play games is great and not alienating um people is always a good thing and i know i have a customer at my store He's a really great guy, and he had a, um, I want to say he had a seizure, and so he has—he lost use of half of his body, uh, one side, I should say, um, and so when he plays games, he will play games with one hand. He talks to me about playing Dark Souls with with one hand on a controller. I mean, it's incredible, and obviously people find a way to play the games they love, but Microsoft making it a little bit easier, I think, is just awesome, and I love that. So, um, but, you know, so that'll be the third story we talk about today. And then, of course, we have our our game of the week we're going to be talking about, which I have picked out in advance, too, this time, so I don't have to scan the shelf for 20 minutes looking for a game. Um, But let's get right into it. So first, I want to talk about GameStop now dealing in comic books. This was was a strange one to me, and and not that GameStop hasn't been one for branching out. Uh, Over the last 5 to 10 years, we've seen them really put a focus on their... Uh, merchandise. So you're seeing pop, pop culture merchandise, t-shirts, uh, Funko Pops line up a whole wall. You've got Dragon Ball Z statues. You've got keychains, You've got puzzles. You've got all that sort of stuff. So so they've been branding on that. And this isn't the first time they've reached outside the market as well. Uh, they were doing cell phone sales for a while, uh, which I they might still be doing. I don't know. They do buy and sell used tablets, iPhones, stuff like that. So they've always been they've always been kind of expanding. What what I liked when I worked there, and if you don't know, I worked there for 11 years and I was a manager for 10 years of that. In fact, I was there for the launch of the PS2. That's when I was there. Technically, it was software, etc. still back then. Same company, same corporate structure, though, just kind of before they ballooned. And one thing I always liked about GameStop as a company back then was I always felt like they were on the, the cutting edge. They were on the cusp. They were always looking for new ways to stay relevant. You know, you didn't have this they didn't feel like they were chasing they felt like they were ahead of the curve i have to be honest this feels a little bit more like chasing uh and so we're going to go into a basically there was a great interview that uh that evan uh narquise did with um with clint walker from gamestop who is one of their pr guys <clears throat> excuse me so uh, we're going to get right into it here and then we're going to we're going to kind of break it down as we go through it. So the, the question was simple. Why does GameStop want to start selling comic books? To which Clint Walker replied, I've been in my role as the director of consumer products for the last few years. We define consumer products as toys and collectibles. The decision to start selling comic books in the U.S. domestic GameStop and ThinkGeek stores is because for us, it's a very natural adjacency End quote i don't think he's incorrect here i think that's actually pretty fair to say and it's funny because he says he's he's been the director of consumer products for the last few years so this is definitely the person who's been in charge of the push on these collectibles you know he's most likely helping decide what goes into stores along with how much to put into stores finding making the deals with the companies to get gamestop the best deal they can get um so he goes on to say, quote, We've got the collector fan in our environment, and the great thing there for us is the purchasing power we have and the loyalty programs we can bridge across to comic book fans. So it's a true opportunity. We've hired a few subject matter experts on our end. They've got a couple great years of product knowledge that we can really lean against. End quote. Uh, You know, this uh, it's just kind of corporate speak, but he's basically saying that because of the the implementation they have of like the power rewards where you get rewards for buying things that'll bridge over to comic book collectors uh, and they'll appreciate getting rewards on buying things that typically when you go to a comic book store, there is no reward system in place in the traditional sense of GameStop's understanding, which we'll get to in a little bit, because I'm going to throw a shout out to my local comic book store, my favorite store for buying anything comics, and and honestly, nerd culture related, is Powers Comics uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, right down from Lambeau Field. Uh, Awesome comic store, the best comic book store I've I've ever been to. In fact, he's the reason I got back into comic books. I would not even be reading comic books again after I took a... 10 year, 15 year hiatus from them. Uh, if it, if I hadn't walked into his store and been so welcomed and so, um, and being so clean and organized, right. Um, and I'll put a little icon down there for you, hopefully if I'm not being too lazy, but Powers Comics Ridge Road, Green Bay, Wisconsin, if you haven't been there, you got to go there and check it out. It's just an awesome place. Um, so he goes on to say, quote, But the opportunity for us is we've got a great selling culture. Our number one focus for our stores is building relationships, which we just see as a natural fit. As for comic shops themselves, we know it's an opportunity. Some of our competition has gone to the wayside, like Hastings or some of the other smaller operations, but in general, This move very much aligns with our goal of being the fast fashion in pop culture. There's just a tremendous opportunity as we continue to grow our partnerships with Marvel and DC and some of the anime properties we've been introducing, end quote. Now, that's also interesting because maybe besides comics, they'll start carrying mangas, perhaps, and things like that. Um, There's a really neat store in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, called Lost World of Wonders, which was a comic book store slash... Uh, now the last time I was there, they didn't have a lot of video games, but it was like anime, manga, comic books, statues, figures. It was kind of like this, like a pop culture store. They've been around a long time. And uh, I, I always liked going down to that store uh, because it was a comic book store and more, you know, it was it, it like the anime focus was kind of neat because there wasn't really a lot like that here. In fact, when I opened my store, I brought all my anime to sell at my used game store. And I thought maybe I'll do the same sort of thing, like a game store with anime and statue roots. Uh, you know, quickly you find out what you're good at and what I was good at was video games. So we stuck to that, but. Uh, you know, their, their take is almost like they want to shift their stores. Like you can clearly tell that GameStop sees the writing on the wall that used games are not going to be around the way they do them forever. And the reason I say that is because the way GameStop does used games is they only carry the most current stuff um they they run a very high profit margin on them, which means they think since they're the only place in town they can pay as little as they want they can set the price and then they can sell them for just a few dollars under new because for a while you know GameStop was really the definitive place to go for buying and selling games uh, unfortunately they haven't really changed that model and in fact they've gotten worse uh, as i showed last week with some of their buyback prices you know paying $8 for a game and trying to sell it for $55. I mean, that's madness. Uh, that's way out of bounds profit margins. Uh, I'm the first one to say, though, if they paid $25 for a $55 game, I don't think that's out of bounds. That's a pretty average uh, markup for what you'd want in a secondhand market when you have to assume a lot of risk with things like defective merchandise and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but GameStop in itself is... it It, it just kind of seems like they're almost getting out of the game market entirely um you know my store is successful i think because we carry everything we go all the way back to in television atari you know i have some um, some uh some of the weird games some of the odyssey stuff some of the you know um uh, what i want to say the uh wonder swan wonder swan color i've imports i have even now i'm starting to get back into pc jewel case games again you know or someone like i have copies of diablo 1 diablo 2 most won't work on a pc but hey it'd be cool to collect right you know so I think that works for me because we have so much back history. You know, when you go into a GameStop store now, sure, you can sell some of your retro games there, but they ship them off to Texas and just sell them on their website. It's just not really well advertised. It's not something they're focusing on, you know, so they could survive as a game store, but not in the way they're doing it since they only carry the new stuff. We do know that one digital purchases are on the rise and we know that one day all of these consoles will either be streaming or will be digital downloads it's just how it's going to be and while i weep for that future as as a fan of collecting physical i i understand that it's just the natural progression of technology and you can't cling to that old technology forever you want to you want to move with the times while still appreciating what you had. And that's what my business will always do. You know, why I don't fear my business is because I know that in 10 years, someone will come in the store and be like, man, the PS3, man, that was my first ever game console. When I was five years old, I was playing PS3 and I'm just going to, well, first of all, I'm going to feel incredibly old, but I'm going to understand then that all of that. Now you're right now, maybe in 20 years, We'll get to the point where the PS4 was the maybe the last physical console. I don't think it will be. I, I honestly think that the, the next consoles will still be all di- uh, physical media, and then after that. So I think we've got about eight to ten years before we hit an all-digital console or all streaming. By that time, the internet will be have been better, more accessible everywhere, and uh, and internet speeds will just be able to download these things and stream these things without any hiccups and interruptions um so eventually say the ps5 in 20 years is the last physical console you know let's say that's okay let's roughly like i said say 20 years so that puts us at 2038 we'll have all the way from 1978 to 2038 that's 50 years of video game consoles is my math right on that yeah my math's right on that we'll have 50 years of video game consoles to go back on um no 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 it's sixty years excuse me I knew my math was wrong on that sixty years of going backwards for old games I mean if you if you can't find enough product from sixty years worth of history I mean that would fill a store forever you know and and you would never need that um obviously as things break things will become less and less easy to find but yeah I mean it, it's 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 interesting um so GameStop's you game model is fading. Uh, and, and so when we move on from that, we, they have to find other ways to make money. So comic books, I don't necessarily disagree that it, I don't disagree that it's, it's a natural adjacency, as he said it, uh, where the video games would go along with pop culture stuff since they're carrying nerd, nerd items, pop culture items, and then shifting to comic books. But it's always interesting how they're going to implement a system like this. Now, they've specifically said that they're going to have a rack in every store, like a four-sided spinner rack. So that one, it doesn't take up a lot of space, which is good for them because they don't have a lot of space, but it also doesn't mean you have a lot of room for comic books. So they talked a little bit here about what they wanted to carry. So the question was, talk to me about those relationships with Marvel, DC, and other publishers. I assume you're working through Diamond Distribution, which if you don't know, that's like the largest comic book distributor in the United States um you're working through diamond distribution to get individual issues every week or are you just sticking to graphic novels and collected editions what's going to be available on shelves so then uh, walker says quote yeah we're going to align with diamond we're doing tremendous business with them already um, more on the collector's statues, action figures, and collectible side of the business. We're going to be rolling comics out in a small subset of stores, probably in the next couple of weeks on both the GameStop and ThinkGeek side. But truly, our biggest opportunity is around Marvel. Marvel is one of our largest fandoms, but also one of the fastest growing fandoms. It's actually outperforming Star Wars, currently with some of our mainstream products, but the opportunity is just opening doors around the Marvel and DC categories. We really, truly have gone after Image and Oni and and boom as well there are some of the indies will be approaching but really i think you'll see most of our stores cater to the primary marvel and dc fans end quote so there's some interesting stuff in here if you kind of read between the lines so what they're really saying is that their main focus is going to be the big two so marvel and dc Totally makes sense. Uh, Marvel Comics being the fastest growing fam- fandom is interesting to me because it, I think it shows the power of the casual consumer and how important the movie market is to that consumer. You know, if DC was making better movies or if Star Wars were making uh, better received movies, I could see those fandoms growing as well. But Marvel, since it's really been hitting its its peak uh, with its its last few releases and it's it's reaching its story arc, peak with uh, the infinity war thing going on so with all that happening marvel fandom is at as high as it's ever been Uh, which so it makes sense that they're going to stick to that but what that also tells me here is that they're aiming for a certain customer they're not aiming for the go to the comic book store every wednesday and pick up your box of the held comics you have customer so places like my friend uh dave's powers comics store he he doesn't really have to worry about losing customers to this he he no one's gonna stop going to him and start going to gamestop for all their comic book needs but what is i think good about this is that more people getting into comic books you might see someone go to gamestop who's never bought a comic before and then all of a sudden they see a spider man comic on the shelf and they're like man i just bought the spider man game it was really awesome i'm gonna read that comic and then maybe that's the gateway right they walk through it and it opens them into a new possibility and they want all these other spider man comics well gamestop probably won't carry them he will go to my friend dave's shop go down to powers comics and say, Hey, I need, um, you know, I need these Spider-Man comics and Oh, I want to go back and read all the old Spider-Man comics. And I think it's a good thing for everyone. So it's funny that you could view something like this almost as competition. And I, I texted Dave about it and, you know, and, and, you know, he rolled his eyes and just kind of like I did too, but it's not that I don't think it's going to hurt his business at all. In fact, I think it will help. Getting more people into it, I think, is a very good thing. And I said this last week with my other GameStop video. Even GameStop, when when the rumors were that they are considering a buyout, say GameStop disappears. And not that's, that that's what a buyout means, but say GameStop disappears. That's not good for me, I don't think. Owning a used game store, I don't think them leaving town is a good thing. The amount of games that they sell new is an influx of positive inventory into our area that can then be sold to me and I can resell to somebody else and the cycle of life can go on. If they were gone, more people I think would decide to do digital because yeah, you can go to Walmart and Best Buy and Target, but a lot of people won't go there. And so if GameStop was their place to hang out and they can't go there anymore, they might say, oh, I'll just buy a digital then no big deal. Because with GameStop also not buying used games back, then that opens up this door to, you know, Well, I can't sell my physical games anywhere anyway, so I might as well just keep them. Not that I wouldn't buy them, but they may not even know about me being a smaller shop and an indie shop like mine is. So uh, he goes on to say they ask, like, where the test store is going to be located, you know, a lot in Texas and Florida and then a lot in the northeast. They're trying to hit bigger markets, see how it works out. Um. And then they talk about here, how will the in-store display setups change to accommodate comics, which he replies, quote, we will actually be leveraging a spinner rack. So it kind of reminds me of those old school drugstores or like I, I used to go to a grocery store in my hometown that just had a spinner rack and you'd flip it around and there was, you know, I think they had a subscription, to maybe five or six comic books. They mostly had magazines in that rack, but they had a few comics. Uh, one of them was the first comic book I ever bought, which was Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, I don't remember the exact issue number, uh, but it was the it was the second issue of the Maximum Carnage storyline. And so that was really my introduction to comic books was reading. It's an interesting read because you start off the magazine, uh, you start off the comic and Peter Parker as Spider-Man has like got his butt kicked. So he's like, he's like his ribs are cracked and he's all beat up. And then he gets rescued by cloak and dagger. And it's just funny because I didn't know what was going on, what got him to that point. I was just so enamored with it. And the art was so incredible. And then from there, it's it was a massive crossover, right? So I was only able to uh, read Spider-Man, the second one. And then all of a sudden, the next ep- issue of Amazing Spider-Man came out the next month or whatever it was, two weeks, maybe. But it was number five in Maximum Carnage or number six. It wasn't number three. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Didn't care. Read it over and over and over again. In fact, my first comic book, I read it so many times the cover fell off, <laughs> and it's just trashed. And uh, and and but it's a it's still mine, and it was it was thoroughly loved. I'll say. Um, so they're just gonna have a spinner rack. They're not gonna have a ton of different options. Um, now, uh, then they asked the question: Does this mean you won't be doing a back catalog strategy where the buyback and st- uh, where you buy back and stock older releases like you do with video games? To which he replied: "Quote." there's potential but I think for the most part we understand that the comic book customer can be extremely generous but also a little harsh in terms of the in-store environment so we'll be looking at those types of opportunities but on the initial go it'll most likely be newly released product but we'll be making but we'll be looking at how we do scale and expand based on what we've learned early on end quote so again, some weird stuff in between the lines here. So he's saying, we understand that the comic book customer could be extremely generous, but also a little harsh in terms of the in-store environment. So again, I think he's saying what I was saying earlier, which is they know that there's a certain type of comic book collector that doesn't want to buy things at GameStop like that. And they don't have the room to have back issues. They can't have four long tables in the store, you know, full of thousands of back issues they can't do that now what are they going to do with the issues that don't sell they they'll probably have a deal with with diamond where they send those back and then they get reimbursed for them or something but you know we'll see i don't think you'll see very many and then i think you'll start to see pre-orders in the store where you know just because they already have a pre-order system in place so how hard would it be to pre-order a comic book then maybe you could see them you know obviously that's how they're going to base their initial orders because pre-orders is how they gauge the interest in a product um so then they go on to ask, for video games, GameStop tends to work on exclusive bundles with hardware manufacturers like Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo. Do you see any kind of similar packaging program you might pursue in comics? Uh, and so he goes on to say, well, I keep bumping my mic here today. He goes on to say, that's an interesting point. We have comics in our environment and certain titles with Injustice 2, blah, 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 blah. He's saying it's possible in the future, but they have no plans for it. Um, uh, and then they say, let's see, I want to get to um so they ask who their subject matter experts are and one of them is a general he says quote we brought in a gentleman named james parker who actually had previous roles at hastings as well as thinkgeek.com he was one of the lead merchants in pop culture for hastings and is a merchant on our team that really came up and brought us on the comic selling opportunity that could be scalable so they're taking somebody from a company that's no longer around Hastings and a merchant uh, and, and think geek, which was purchased by GameStop. And he's essentially the one pushing forward on the comic books. Again, I don't think it's a bad idea to carry comic books. It's just, it just seemed like it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, it feels like they're grasping at straws a little bit. It just feels like it. Um, so then they asked, is Diamond Distribution going to be your sole partner in terms of acquiring comic books? To which he said, quote, I think we'll expand but early on. Diamond is our primary partner. There's no signs of exclusivity discussions, but they're currently working fine. Um, and then he, uh, the the interviewer goes on to say, it's comics is like a hand selling business where retailers evangelize to customers. It's a little bit different than video games. Do you feel like you're going to have a different training with consumer facing staff to message comics? How do you plan to train up staff to service that different market? Uh, And then Walker replies, well, our primary communication vehicle will be our power-up rewards program. So they're saying that the most way they'll talk to their customers is through their (laughs) loyalty program, emails and text messages and such. You know, it's one of the largest loyalty... here's, Here's brag time. You know, it's one of the largest loyalty member databases in the US for any retailer. And I think that's where we're able to only segment our loyalty programs to define who is purchasing what products from us. As an example, we've been able to pull together the Funko Insider Club, which actually targets to that demographic first, or our Pokemon side of the business. We've done tremendous business with Pokemon on the video game side, but we're able to sell Pokemon Center products through our Pokemon loyalty database. So what he's basically saying here is that their loyalty program also breaks down what you bought. So if you buy a lot of Funkos, they'll send you specific items about Funko. If you buy a lot of Pokemon stuff, they have a specific Pokemon club, things like that. Uh, and then this is my favorite question. News is breaking about GameStop looking to be acquired. Does his, does this change the mindset you guys have towards selling comics? To which the PR spokesperson replied, Evan, we can't touch that. <laughs> so the story we talked about last week, they're still not talking about. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the gist of it. Uh, and I just kind of want to finish up with um, the idea that it's not a bad thing that they're doing this. Uh, in fact, I think that I'm a little late on the flipping to the scene there. Sorry guys. Um, I think it's a little, it's not a bad thing that they want to carry comic books, but it doesn't feel like they're being proactive. It feels like they're being reactive and that's not good when your cus when your company is struggling, once you start to react to the market, you're already too late. And so I don't think it's a bad idea. I just don't know I guess I don't know where they're coming from in sense of why this would make sense uh, because it's not going to be very large scale, especially in the beginning. You know, unless they have some sort of really good deal worked out with Diamond Distribution, I don't see how they're going to sell enough companies to make this even worth having a spinner rack in the store unless somehow that also works out where because the one thing I will always say about GameStop and a lot of people don't realize this was how much money they make off of marketing. And and not now note that I didn't say how much money they spend on marketing, how much money they make on marketing. So GameStop sells realty in the store to companies. So like they have big posters on the wall. When you see a poster for Ghost Recon or for Destiny on the wall or something else that was paid for by activision if you see an end cap that's featuring a certain set of toys that was paid for by that company all those spots are sold to companies and that's where gamestop makes a lot of their money now if they're able to sell maybe that maybe they told marvel hey if you buy all the racks for us and and you know we put all these comics in our store you pay this much to us it'll you know maybe it's a break even thing for them i'm not sure but it's very important to know like how gamestop does business and how much money they make off of simply marketing their stores and selling their stores. Again, not the other stores don't do this. Best Buy does it. Um, all major retailers do this. Walmart does. I mean, it, it's all sort of the same thing. But GameStop is a little more aggressive with it. Like, th- this is a crazy story that people don't believe. And oftentimes, people I used to work with didn't believe. But this was only spoke to at the manager level because they were thinking about implementing it. And thank God they never implemented it. There was an idea for a while that GameStop was going to have required... Uh, a required dress code where you would get a polo and that polo would have Velcro straps all over it. And every marketing period, which was like every three weeks, I think it was, or every two weeks, whatever it was, they would, you would have gotten a new set of patches to put on your shirt. So not only were they selling this floor space, they were going to start selling their employees as advertising tools. So an armband, for instance, a new game's coming out, boom, Forza, Forza Horizon 4 armband, uh, armband. And then you'd have a big one on the back that it's like, oh, someone, you know, on every one of our employees is going to be wearing a Battlefield 5 uh, Velcro on the back. And so then the idea was that those companies would pay for the advertising, they would pay for the materials, ship the materials to us, and then we would be there walking billboards. Like, that was an idea that GameStop had, and thank God it never came true, because that would have been a really difficult one for me to swallow. It would be like a NASCAR driver. Like, you get out, and it's just patch, 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 patch. You know, it's just, I don't know. It, honestly, it's, it's kind of gross. <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad to do it, but it proves how desperate GameStop can be with their marketing and how aggressive they are with their selling marketing strategies and, and they use it. And you know what they need to, it's a business. They're trying to make money. I don't hold them against that, but it's, you know, it's just something they've gone after. So they might have some sort of deal in place like that, which would explain a lot, you know, why they would try to get into a market that initially is so tiny. Like, you know, say, I mean, I just, you've got 6,000 stores roughly with the Think Geek stores and the GameStop stores, say every store's going to carry, you know, a hundred comic books. I, I just don't see how, you know, that, that makes up that much of a comic book sold. Uh, you know, I, I just, it just looks like such tiny numbers to me instead of the, you know, you've got so many other places ordering way more comics. Uh, you know, as, and unfortunately there aren't really comic book stores that are large chains. So that might be the only benefit that GameStop has here is that there is no like huge chain of like corporate wide, you know, um, countrywide complete comic book, like mega company. And so maybe they're going to look to fill that void. And if it does well, you'll see what happens, like what happened with the pop culture items, which means games get smaller, smaller pop culture gets a little smaller and then comics will get a little bit bigger and you'll start to see that grow and they'll flex whatever, category makes more money for them. So moving on from GameStop. So the next thing I want to talk about I want to break into a kind of a weird story. Uh we're going to start cracking on this Atari VCS stuff, which I'm sure you guys are sick of me talking about already and I like I said earlier to be in the podcast, I'm not trying to milk this out. Same with the Billy Mitchell stuff. I could have done another two or three Billy Mitchell videos probably with the stuff that's been going on. But I'm actively choosing not to because I'm quite honestly sick about talking about Billy Mitchell. And, uh, and there's other people covering it. There's other people that have the hot takes that you want to get on that. I can't add anything to that conversation. The Atari VCS, though, this one was a turn that I thought was quite interesting. So back in March, this interesting article came out. So during GDC, that's the Game Developer Conference, during GDC, uh, this website, The Register, sent their tech guy, uh, Kieran McCarthy... They sent him to ch- to GDC and during that set up a time to talk about the Atari VCS, uh, which the Atari box, um, <laughs> uh, which what it was called then renamed the Atari VCS. So they do this article about it where they interview, um, Mr. Arts. I don't know. What's his first name? I, I don't, I don't remember. It doesn't matter. It, uh, you know, so they, Uh, Michael, excuse me, sorry, the Atari's chief operating officer, COO Michael Arts, was basically doing an interview with this with this tech guy for a pretty large website, you know, pretty large audience. And so he they they do this you know they write the article about it they start to talk about how they feel like the co didn't really know what he was talking about they were very vague things didn't work like they were supposed to uh and and this article was pretty critical to be fair you know this article was very critical um Launch date, interf- uh, like here here he goes through some things. He asked about the launch date, can't say. Interface, can't tell you. Hardware manufacturer, can't tell you. Games developer partners, we're talking to people. Target market, we can't say. So there's a lot of, you know, they were focusing on the fact that the COO doesn't really seem to know that much about his product, a product that's supposed to be coming out very soon. Now, this was right around the news where they pushed back the pre-order to, you know, they'd pushed back the pre-order, I think in December, or January or something. And they pushed all the way back and they said it would be in the um, end of April. It ended up coming out in, in, in May, I believe, or right at the end of April is when they said it would be coming next month, whatever. And so, uh, at this point he said they refused to give a pre-order date. And then he, basically the whole conversation was him telling him things that he doesn't know and things that he can't talk about. So, okay. There's just, he feels very frustrated the art the person this article because he's a tech guy he talks to a lot of tech companies that have prototypes and unfinished things and you know this person's basically not able to tell him anything about anything and so here's the things that he finally finds out that he does know it'll cost around 250 bucks it'll work like a good laptop it will do 4k video it will use an amd chipset and it will run linux those are the things that were like set in stone so those were the things he was able to get out of it um So he starts kind of talking about that. This is not a positive article. Um, And then so he jokingly says here, we thank Mike. We wish him all the best and grab an Atari branded baseball cap on the way out the door. So that was it. This was back in March. It was no big deal. The story came out. It was what it was. Okay. well, then something started to pop up because lately Atari VCS The uh, Facebook page has really been active with its community in the sense of going after people. One of the first things was that a couple of YouTubers like um, RGT85 and uh, Dreamcast guys, so those two guys were getting a little bit of flack, RGT mostly, because people would go to the Atari VCS social media sites and say, hey, this guy did this video, what do you think? And then they would instantly come back and start just destroying that person saying, this is fake news. They're just in it for views. They're in it for clicks. Don't listen to anything they're saying. They don't care about you. They don't care about the product. They only care about making money. They're not being honest with you. Don't listen to them. Being very, you know, very attacking, right? And, and when that story came out, I was even like, I could do a video on that. But eh, it's just, it's a little bit of internet drama. It doesn't really matter. And, and, and there is a sense of, you know, YouTubers are looking for views like it's, it's what we do. So understandably, that's why I could do more Billy Mitchell videos. They always skyrocket to 10 to 50,000 views within a couple of days. But I'm not trying to just milk views at this point. I'm not trying to milk subs. And I want people to watch all of our content, not just come here only for Billy. and And, and, and I look at my most viewed videos and I'm very happy that I've done well with them. But it's not all I want to be known for. And so then on the Atari VCS Facebook page, the reason I'm getting there is because sometimes there are YouTubers out there trying to milk these topics. I don't think RGT85 is one of them. I don't think Dreamcast Guy is one of them. I think they just talk about the things that interest them. And I do the same. So we, there was a customer here on the Atari Facebook page. And I, I have to be honest, I think this was a trolling comment to bring up this article. I don't think this is actually true what this person's saying, but let's read it. So this was on Facebook by someone named Eric Storm. Quote, a fan since childhood, a supporter and promoter to the day I die. I always push and suggest Atari. Lately, I haven't been able to afford the smartwatch or the speaker hat, but I have been spreading the word. I'm trying to save up for the VCS as my life falls apart around me. So please, I beg of you, be as brutally honest as possible and explain this article. If I should give you more time and wait for the VCS to be perfected, I gladly will. A lifelong love of Atari here. I mean, that that comment just kind of screams sarcasm with the whole, as my life falls apart around me, I'm trying to save up for a VCS. It's very over the top, right? But let's say for instance, the person is legit and this was a legit comment. He, he tagged the article. This was two weeks ago. He tagged the article back from March that we just talked about and we read, um, from, um, from the register and, uh, Kieran McCarthy. And so he puts that in there. And so then the first person says, wow, just read the article. Not a good sign, but I'll hope it works out for Atari. And I hope to make a comeback. And then a week after, so this, are, this, pick, this had been up for a week, so clearly they're not very active on social media. So Atari VCS responds... We honestly can't explain that article either. Our executive sat with that reporter for half an hour and wrote that he what he wanted instead of what we discussed with him. Sadly, there are even irresponsible trolls in professional positions, I guess. We clearly said that we were bringing an engineering design model to GDC, and lots of people clearly don't understand what that means. Hunks of plastic? Well, yeah, that's how you finalize the designs and confirm that you get the look and the feel for what finished products. Sad. So, I also want to make this comment here too because whoever is running this i'm getting some serious like he follows donald trump on twitter vibes because it whoever this person is in charge of this i don't know if it's a him i shouldn't say that him or her in the other article they were talking about rgt 85 it was fake news exclamation point and then they talk about something and here it's just the end of the thing finished products sad you know now there's no exclamation point exclamation point but it's that same sort of verbiage it's really strange like it, it's almost like they're using that tactic to deflect you know to deflect negativity and so then that xavier guy goes boom suck that stupid article writer to which right below him this is my favorite part karen mccarthy shows up hey quote he wrote what he wanted rather than what we discussed end quote oh dear, you must have forgotten that I recorded the interview. We'll see if my editor is, introduced, is interested in a follow-up given your accusations. So that got the most likes and, and, and uh, funnies and thumbs up of anything here. And so <laughs> he basically said, oh yeah, you can say that what I said was fake and unprofessional, but I have the tapes. Best part about that. We have the tapes too. So on their website they did the follow-up article that they talked about, and this came out just about five days ago, this follow-up. And this article was just basically saying we're going to defend our integrity. And and so the article head is Atari accuses El Reg of Professional Trolling and Making Stuff Up. Well, here's the interview tape for you to decide. <laughs> and then here's the line. We're so very sorry that we found the MP3. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> nice, taking a little, a little uh, shot at his, uh, at, at the reply that uh, Atari VCS did on the Facebook page. So the article goes on to say the legendary games company Atari has accused a registered reporter of making stuff up and acting unprofessionally following an interview earlier this year in San Francisco with the launch of the new games console, the Atari VCS. In that article, we were critical of the fact that the machine did not work and its chief operating officer, Michael Arts, whom we spoke to, appeared unable to answer even the most basic questions about the product. We were shown quote, engineering design models that did not work and pointed out as much. Subsequently, a potential buyer of Atari VCS posted a link to the article on the company's Facebook page and asked the biz to respond, and Atari responded like this. That's what we just talked about. We can't explain the article. They basically feel like they were were honest and upfront and that the article unfairly criticized them. Um, And the uh, register goes on to say... Uh, we at the register often take a lighthearted and critical perspective on the news of the day. We take our professional obligations as reporters very seriously in that capacity. We would like to formally apologize to both Atari and Michael arts for digging out a recording of the interview and for the following article in which we highlight that Atari is so full of crap that it should be designated as a hazardous waste zone. Um, and so here they, they break it down to some nice little clips here for us. The full article is here at the bottom. But we're going to kind of go through some of these um because this is uh this is kind of great. So um we're going to uh we're going to start here. So the first one here is pr- <laughs> presumably this is where Atari feels the reporter wrote what he wanted instead of what was discussed with him. So here we go.
1: If I plug this into uh, if it's this USB, one right? Yeah, this one's USB-C if for I charging If I plug that and... into into my laptop, would it work?
0: So real quick, I just want to pause it and say they're talking about the functional at the time uh, USB classic controller, which is basically like the Atari Twenty Six Hundred controller with the with that and had a USB out and everything.
2: That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what it would do on a laptop. I know what it'll do. I know this this particular unit will work with our boards back at the engineering studio. Okay. Yeah, this one is real. Would it work with
1: another with another games console? I
2: doubt it. I don't think it's made to work with another games console.
1: Okay. Yeah. I don't so you've got it. custom, custom hardware and software there to talk to your. It will only work with your box.
2: Well, no. This is no, no. Everything's universal. I just don't know if this. Particular, this isn't. This is. This is not a it's manufacturing a a sample. Before, yeah. This is. A, a, this was a, an engineering sample that you know. So some of the. Some of the, um, you know, the final design things. This works, yeah. but it's not the final one.
0: You know. So, basically, he doesn't even know what would happen if you plugged that USB controller into a PC. Now, I understand that he's not an engineer, and you're going to hear that a lot through these little clips I'm going to play, is that he keeps saying, hey, I'm not the engineering guy, I'm just the project lead, or whatever, I'm just overseeing the project. How do you oversee a project and you don't understand simple questions like this? How do you not know that? I just don't get that.
2: We're Like I said, we're going to add in the the... The uh, paddle control, We're gonna, you know, this, sure. there's things that are going to go into that. So, um, I don't know. Wait, is, is Joe here? We had our engineer here. I, I could ask him if that would do something on a, on a PC. I don't know. Right. You know, I just don't know. <laughs> I, so that, that's just something I just, I don't know all the ins and outs of what that'll do right now.
0: <laughs> I don't know the ins and outs. Of the, you don't know if it'll work if you plug it into a PC? I mean, give me a fricking break. Okay. So in the article, they also wrote, quote, Mike tries to tell us the big product launches are suspended all the time. We tell him they really aren't. And on the rare occasion that they are, the company goes out of its way to explain and give a new launch timeline. So is this another example of professional trolling? Here's the, uh, here's the clip.
2: The worst thing we could have, the worst thing we could have done, the worst thing, you know, so people might say, you know, oh, I'm being evasive and it's, that's bad faith and we're not being fair to the consumer, but what would have been a whole lot less fair is if we put a pre order, pre sale out there and started taking people's money and then pull back. That's true. So but it was that it was, was it's that very was very
1: unusual in that I've covered tech for a long time. It's very unusual for someone to get right to a launch date and then pull yeah. it for unspecified reasons. Usually No, I will just say happens, that there were out there were their way to say, okay, this is what went wrong. This is how long it's gonna take us to fix it. That's what, that's what normally happens when someone pulls at the last minute. But yet, okay. They overwhelm I, I,
2: then, you with then, then maybe we're not normal. Well, you could say, I don't know. Where's Where's Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook yeah. right now? He hasn't said a word about it.
0: Okay, so there he is comparing himself to Mark Zuckerberg, who was deceitful about Facebook's practices, but hasn't been coming out and saying anything about it after getting busted. So why would you compare yourself to a guy that's essentially doing a shady tactic and a shady thing and not addressing the concerns that people have about their product? I mean, that, why would you want to compare yourself to him? His well, well, situation. But yeah. he's yes. a lot of heat. Of
2: course, break. right. But, you know, we're not and we're not on that level either. But look, I, I respect your questions. I think the, the, the <laughs> he respects reality is his questions certain things that were not, it's, it's just not fair to the, 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 the parties involved to talk about. And I'm not, you know it's not it's not worth going there and
0: it... what's not what's it's not worth going there what's not worth going there so basically he refuses to answer why they delayed the pre-order you know and, and the the interviewer makes a good point saying if this happens why the company feels like they have to go way out of the way to explain what happened and to reassure their fans that some of this won't happen again, but also to know that they fixed whatever the problem was. And these guys are completely dodging whatever the reason was for the pushback. They refuse to let us know. The only reason you would refuse that is if it's somehow damaging to your platform or it's somehow damaging to what you're doing. And he doesn't want that info out there, or he may not know because he doesn't seem to know very much about anything. Um, so then, then now this one, uh, I'll give a little leeway to him because, you know, they're, they're giving him a hard time because he's comparing their console launch to like a rocket launch by NASA. And he didn't obviously mean that it's as in depth as a rocket launch, but he was just trying to say that, like, you have a checklist of things before you launch. And if one of those checks isn't done, you don't still launch it, you know? And so I'm not going to play that clip because I I do, I, I listened to that one and I thought that's not anything worth attacking over in my opinion, even though it's a piss poor, like, um, Analogy. It's it. The point he was trying to make was just that you have a checklist of things. If the checklist isn't done, you don't launch. You know that that's the point he was trying to make. Um. So uh, he goes on to say we were also vocal about the fact that Atari's answers, in particular, the fact that it still hadn't decided what chip was going to be used in the hardware, gave us a serious reason for pause. And then, uh, which again is what they wrote in the article. And if you're going to say that's fake, here's why they wrote that. And here's the audio.
1: Hardware settled at least. <laughs>
0: So you've locked, aspect you've locked
1: down the chip, you've locked down.
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, we were looking at one chip and that was a possibility we may shift because time has passed and there's a new chip available that maybe oh, there's always, more... there's yeah, always exactly. a new chip available. Right, but, but, but we're not so far down the road where we're locked into the first chip, so there's a possibility that for the same price or less, we could have better performance. We'd be crazy not to look at that, right? So that's sure but that sounds like well look i'm not the engineer <laughs> you know i'm, 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 I'm oh, overseeing again. the project that's a different you know that's something that like you know
1: we've, we've got you're saying a lot of things that concern me a little bit
0: okay so the first thing that bothers me out of that is we're not so far down the road that we can't replace the chip that powers the device now what he's probably trying to say is if they got an amd chip that AMD, as it's working out, instead of offering a, you know, a certain type of chip, they can offer their next yearly kind of upgrade with more power. You know, they can still put that in. So they still know what structure they're going with. They still know what chip they are going with and the rough estimate of the power for dev kits that would be out there, you know, for potential developers and stuff. That's fine. But to, <laughs> to, to try to say then at the end again, hey, I'm not the engineer. Like this is the point where how do you not have all these things figured out? You know, like you're about to launch this thing as a pre-order in a few months. Cause this was back in March and they launched a pre-order in, uh, in May. I think, was it May? Yeah, I think it was May end of May. So they're launching it in a few months and they don't even know for sure what chip's going to be inside yet, you know? And most of the time when you have hardware like this, the one guy will say something, like, oh, it's going to be the AMD, you know, this chip. But if, if, uh, you know, once, well, during manufacturing, we might switch it out to this upgraded chip. If we can get, you know, the deal made with AMD, that's all you have to say. And then that way, if you're using the old chip, you're fine. And then if you get to use the new chip, you're fine. You know, it's just, just be honest with people about it. Um, and then, you know, he goes on to say, um, you know, Atari's response on Facebook wasn't a total surprise because they sensed a little frustration in the executive's voice. So here's another, uh, another clip. You know, look, I think every question you've asked is a fair question and is a good question. And it's just, you
2: know, right. And it's just, you know, for me, I'm in a position where, you know,
0: I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. So obviously that's a joke. He doesn't really mean that. But what he's basically saying, there's just things he can't say. And we all understand with certain projects, there's going to be certain things you can't say. But why would you bring your your set up to gdc why would you invite the press when you don't have anything and why would you sit down and talk to him if you don't know anything if you either don't know anything or you can't say anything then what's even the point of being there you know what it is i do know the point of it the point is to dredge up hype you're trying this is this is an ultimate hype machine and you're doing whatever you can just to make it as hyped up as humanly possible um so and, and then he goes on to say um here that atari was extremely clear about the reason it had invited us except we're being sarcastic and therefore extremely misleading of us to suggest after the fact in the article that we had ever expected to be able to use the console at a showcase event we never gave any indication that we were surprised by the fact that we were basically shown several pieces of plastic we certainly never mentioned that we expected to play a game nope that never happened oh wait a minute we got a clip the way
2: we're thinking about that that initiative is again. It goes back to it's a much more it's much more about engaging the community than it is about you must crowdfunding. Understand.
1: So there's already there's a people want this to happen. Yes, That's why of course. This is why I you know I'm even here. Yeah, of course. They, they love the idea. Yep. But you have a credibility issue in that you had a uh, you know a launch that didn't happen. Yep, absolutely. And then you have a, a, a launch without without a launch right now.
2: Well, so what this is, is what this, must, what what today was about, was to show people that the stuff is really being made. The stuff really exists. I was kind of hoping we might at least
1: have an Atari game going, I could use the controller.
2: Well, we we deliberately felt like we didn't want to do that yet. So, okay. you know, we want the user. You know, when someone's going to use it, we want the user user, user interface to be there. We don't want it to be, um, you know. Again, we don't want to show somebody something incomplete. Right now, I've got I've got design models that are complete. These are what their things are going to I look t- like.
1: As a, as a tech journalist, I've, I've played with all kinds of sure. of not ready stuff, and people say, "Hey, it's not ready, but I want
2: you to see what we've been imagining." Ah, but got I want you to see. So right now, we're I don't have something
0: I want you to see yet. So. <laughs> that's funny because he's, you know, the guys are arguing that, you know, he doesn't want you to see it till it's perfect. And you're like, okay, well then first of all, why are you here? And then uh, it goes on to argue that, the, you know, the tech guy basically says, Hey man, I, I've played with all kinds of stuff. It's prototype phase, demo phase, not a hundred percent working phase, just to get an idea of something to start spreading the positivity about it. And these guys did nothing like that. Um, and then at the very end here, so He goes on to say, but most of all, we would like to apologize sincerely to all of our readers and to anyone considering putting down money for the Atari VCS for completely omitting a critical part of the interview in our original article. We made no mention of the fact that there is every reason to believe that Atari's entire enterprise is being funded by hype and that the only way the company can afford to create even its first console is by persuading people to hand over their cash before the company itself has a working prototype. And here's the proof. We got one last recording for you guys.
1: Does Atari have... Have the funds to create enough boxes, or do you need do you need funds to build the boxes?
2: That is something that I'm not going to talk about because I'm not the finance guy. But yes, the project's moving forward. Okay. You understand
1: that if you if you launch again with like an Indiegogo, people typically it is uh, people are a little hesitant about it because right, they think, "What do oh, need the well, money in order to make it?" Let's put it this way.
2: So there are. There are business discussions underway yeah. with major partners who would have an impact on how it's distributed, where it's sold, things like So there's so many moving parts yeah. that Again, until things are locked, if we start talking about all of our hopes and dreams and, and they don't come true, that's worse. So I'd rather not, you know, I'd rather not tell you something that I'm not sure about. And
0: so there it is. And what you heard right there at the end was basically that they don't have enough money to build this thing. They have enough money to build a prototype and get their marketing teams out there in full force. And then after the Indiegogo campaign is successful, then they'll have enough money to produce the item. Now, why that's a problem? Because if they run into some sort of manufacturing snag, maybe they run into a, a, a last minute glitch or bug or they get a bad batch of, you know, processors or something bad happens, that's lost money for them. But that's our money that we basically are putting down to get this item. If they end up having some sort of production issue and they can't and they don't have enough money to fund production, then the item will never come out. And so it's not like they've got they've got a company that's got a bunch of money in the backlog. Like there's never any question that Sony that you're gonna pre-order a system at like GameStop and then Sony's gonna have production issues with the PS5 and then it'll never come out. That's not a that's not a concern. It is a concern with these guys because one, you're not pre ordering at a store where you can get a refund, you're pre ordering it from them and directly giving them money that they don't have to prove or provide any sort of it's, it's not even an investment. It's basically it's, it's a, a hope and a prayer is what you're paying for. So speaking of Indiegogo, if you don't know Indiegogo is a crowdfunding campaign, uh, site, much like Kickstarter, except very different from Kickstarter in a lot of important ways. One of the rules at Kickstarter is that if you're going to make a hardware You cannot start a Kickstarter without valid prototype. You have to have a working prototype at the time of the Kickstarter to show everybody what you're working on. It's a great rule for many reasons. Indiegogo does not have that rule. So when Atari VCS chose to use Indiegogo as their crowdfunding platform, they knew that they didn't have to have a working prototype at the time of the Indiegogo campaign, which I would be surprised if they had a working prototype. Now, um, there was just a couple weeks ago at E3. It was noted. That was another part of the story. I didn't cover that. Basically they had demo units shown up where they had the Atari VCS hooked up to a TV and they had the controllers playing Tempest 4000, except it wasn't, it wasn't the actual game. It was hooked up to a PC and it was just meant for footage purposes to show off the game. And all this came to light because the developer of of Tempest 4000 basically said, oh yeah, I know it's coming out for PS4, PC, and Xbox one, but we don't know anything about it coming out in Atari box. And then all of a sudden, like a week later, I'm sure after having massive discussions with them that Atari box convinced him, Hey, you know, just please put some positive spin on this. You're going to put this the game on our system too. He came out and said, oh yeah, you know, after the discussions we are coming and we'll make it figured all out, but very strange, you know, just, just very, very misleading, you know, and you know, because they made it look in that latest video that it was playing on actual hardware and it wasn't. And and, and again, that was a story I could have done an individual video on, but it was just, I'm not trying to milk this thing, but this is a pretty big, you know, story. And this is all these little pieces coming together. And so the last thing I wanted to show was that, so this is the Indiegogo campaign page again. So right now with four days left. So this is after 26 days. Um, They have raised $2.9 million with 11,044 backers. Nothing wrong with that. They've gone 2,900. And this is okay. This pisses me off too, right? This goal of a hundred thousand, first of all, being a flexible goal, which means if you didn't raise a hundred thousand, you'd still get the money, which means you really would have lost it forever. But Hey, they went, you know, they, for some reason, put their goal at a hundred thousand, which is just mental. You need more money than that to do what you're trying to do here. So they went over 2,913% over the goal. So 2.9 million, 11,000 backers. Cool. Except I did a video about this two weeks ago. is gonna be a little bit harder to see. Hey, look at that handsome man down there. Um, So when there were 25 days left, okay, 25 days left. So this was 21 days. So this was three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, they were at 2.5 million by 9,800 backers. So in twenty one days, they've raised four hundred thousand dollars, and only with a uh, roughly twelve hundred more backers. Uh, okay, so you got nine thousand backers in five days, and then you get eleven hundred in twenty one. 121? Now there's always a peak in the beginning, right? The first time when something goes live, it's always got a big jump, but this is like a massive flying off a cliff. This isn't, this isn't, this is like someone just slammed on the brakes. Now there are a lot of rumors too, that because of how quickly they got their money, there's a lot of rumors that they had outside funding and that a lot of these things were, were not legitimate backers paying the money into this, uh, crowdfunding. So I don't know, guys. I You know, I want to amend my statement from three weeks ago because what I said three weeks ago was that it was vaporware and that I don't think it's going to come out. I want to amend that a little bit. I don't think it's vaporware. I truly believe that they want to make this system and that the plan is not just to take your money and run. I don't think that's what they're thinking. But clearly what it was, was they own the name to Atari. Nostalgia's hot. They said, we can make a project, but we don't have the money to start it ourselves. We'll build up the hype machine. We'll get everyone just salivating over it. And then we'll launch the Indiegogo as we're slowly working on it. And once we have enough money raised by the Indiegogo campaign, then that's when full production will begin. And I think that's really sucks. And I, 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 I'm worried that if now they made enough money where most likely they'll have enough money to come out with a final product. Um, what that final product will be, and what it will be compared to what we're seeing now—who even knows? You know, I, I don't even know if it'll come close. We still have the issues with the the Commodore sixty, the C sixty four computer system that uh, that they basically stopped working on to work on the C sixty four mini. Then they were going to, if they made money off of that, then they'd go and, and make the actual C64 computer remake that they were thinking about. And it's all of these things are not necessarily designed to steal your money, but they want a zero risk opportunity. This is zero risk for Atari. They get to run their company for another year or two with none of their own money and money that they didn't have to earn by giving a product or taking a risk in like, this is just money that's basically given to them with no repercussions. If they don't ever use it the way it's supposed to be used, except yes. Okay. So the company could go out of business, but they ran for two or three years. The CEO made his money, you know, the investors lost their asses too. And, and that's, that's worst case scenario on this. You know, I, again, don't think it was a scam necessarily. I just think that it was a company basically putting all financial responsibility on us the consumer instead of them taking the risk and they could have done a bunch of marketing and they could have went out there and said you know we want you know, they could, they could have come out and said, here, here's the product, you know, we're putting all this, you know, this is what we want to do. If there's interest, then we'll put our money into building it. But no, they said, let's build all this hype, let's spend all of our money on marketing. And then we'll take the customer's money and then risk all of that to maybe come out with this product. If we can get through all the hurdles of of releasing a console and that sort of thing just irritates me. So the last story we want to talk about after just dumping all over Atari is that, uh, and this is about a month Though I'm, I'm a month late on this and Jordan talked to me a little bit about this and I didn't get to squeeze it in my last few podcasts but I definitely want to talk about it today because this is a good one so Microsoft is creating something called the adaptive controller uh, and now this Ars Technica article was a little bit uh, a little bit rude about it Microsoft's most incomplete accessory ever at only $100 is also its most ambitious so they take a subtle dig there that it's incomplete um, but it is a good thing what it is and it's meant to be customizable. So on the surface, it looks kind of like an Xbox one controller with a D pad and a few buttons. And so it looks very simple. Uh, And then here's going to be some more pictures. I want to kind of show you. So one, it can be mounted uh, and on the back here is what's really interesting. So this is basically all the button mapping back here and you can customize and add devices to this and it's any device that you want to use so here they show someone in a wheelchair using it um, and then here they show someone using it with all these different devices hooked up Um, and, and like i said fully customizable so say you were only able to use your mouth you could get the device that would let you use your mouse to move the joystick or your mouth to use the joystick around and also have like sensors if you want to blow in one or if you want to like like there's it's fully customizable around your disability and I think this is so freaking awesome um, I'm going to kind of play the video here I'm going to mute it though just because I'm going to kind of talk over it and I know the people in the podcast are going to listening to this podcast is audio only or you're kind of missing out but I'll describe it as we go along and show it shows a few uh gamers that have some disabilities being able to use a device that they normally wouldn't be able to play any normal games with and i want to get to i'm going to skip forward in this video a little bit because i want to show some of the things that they're actually using so here they have let's get this out of here so here they have like what would essentially be um like a, a guitar pedal or maybe even like a sewing machine pedal like some sort of pedal device that can be plugged in the back so let's say you want to use that for playing a racing uh, game or you want to play rocket league or something like that here they show a wee nunchuck I mean, how cool is that? So they actually have a Wii Nunchuck device hooked up. And they've actually changed the colors to be black and green, which is hilarious. And they have a Wii Nunchuck hooked up to this controller. I mean, that's just awesome. And uh, so then they start talking about how you can plug in different USB interface devices. So here uh, on this picture, it shows the guy from Microsoft actually using his mouth to fully control an Xbox controller. And this sort of thing I mean, this, this was what I said. I wanted to get into also talking about some more uplifting news here and there. Um, because I'm going to kind of play this little bit here where he shows himself using his knees. So he can play Rocket League with one foot, one pedal, And he can go back and forth on the desk with his sensor thing. So there's some really interesting stuff here. But this is an uplifting story. This is such a cool thing for Microsoft to do. And I'll be honest, they're not going to make money on this. This isn't a way to make money. And you could argue it's not even really a way for PR necessarily. This is straight up just something, in my opinion, being done for the community and being, you know, it's, it's it's a tech lab sort of thing. But this is one of those great stories where a company seems to be doing what's right and it's not motivated by money necessarily it's just motivated by being able to and i guess you could argue that yes technically it brings more people into gaming uh because if if people with disabilities can't play your games they won't buy your systems they won't buy your games this is just a cool way but they didn't have to do something like this like i guarantee this thing won't make money but that's not the point the point is to do something great and it looks kind of like like visually speaking it looks like a almost like a box with speakers in it. That's not what it is, but it looks like that with a D pad. It almost looks like a DJ hero board. If you ever play with one of those, except instead of one, one, you know, record spinning, you'd have two. So it's a long rectangular box, maybe a foot long by half a foot tall and thin, almost like a keyboard. Think of it, the shape as a keyboard and it's just really, really cool. And, uh, it can be fully customized. That's the part that you have to you have to completely understand here is that this you can attach anything that has these sort of adapters into it so it has it has its own kind of buttons and inputs sticks to move around but you can hook up joysticks to it so you'll be able to use like a joystick with um like minecraft it showed him walking around and turning with a joystick like an old sidewinder usb so very cool stuff and um it's just really really neat this is one of those like i said one of those things that isn't meant to make money um 19 ports to button map everything uh 3.5 millimeter jacks um and let's see oversized button finger switches blowing tubes foot pedals and other specialized inputs have long been built for gamers who can't hold on to or efficiently use average controllers um and so uh, the CEO, Sadia Nadella and Xbox chief Phil Spencer have recently said things about inclusivity in computing and gaming, but this device like literally does that. Th- this is more inclusive than any, any device or any controller. And, um, so look at all these different pieces, parts. I know if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're missing out, but, I and mean, there's touch pads that you can work in. There's like finger buttons, like that you'd have like, like taps and clicks. And it's just really cool. Um, like I said, mouth control devices, joysticks, foot pedals, like leg pedals just really really cool um now my only concern about this is i feel like someone might be able to manipulate this into using devices that shouldn't be used for certain games if they don't have a disability so what if say someone wants to play i don't know i guess technically you can use mouse and keyboard on the xbox already but say someone wanted to have an advantage in you know PUBG or they want to have an advantage in Fortnite and they find the best advantages to use these two things plugged in with this. It's faster if I do this, you know, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? I suppose not, Uh, especially if someone like that might possibly ruin it. But you've got a great thing for people with disabilities to be able to play more games. I think that is worth it. Like If you have 10 people with disabilities can play for every one person that would abuse it and cheat with it, absolutely worth it. A hundred percent, no questions, hands down, absolutely worth it. And so that's it, everybody. That is the the program for today. That is the podcast. We're going to then finally talk about one of my uh, another game that uh, that I quite enjoy. Uh, it's kind of a rare one, Caverna, but one a lot of people probably won't be able to play it if you don't have the right system. But I'm talking about Double Dungeons. Um, I may have talked about this one already, but I wanted to bring it up again because I recently played through it again, and the game is just really really fun. So I'm gonna kind of zoom in here on the on the back of it so if you look at it it's just kind of a first person dungeon crawler nothing too crazy nothing too special you walk into enemies you attack you level up there's a shop where you buy items so pretty basic stuff however uh it also has two players and i played through this originally with a friend And you start off actually in different places and on different ends of a locked door. So you each go on like a single adventure. You're leveling up. You're doing different things, getting your items. Eventually, you break through the door by both getting the key or whatever you need. I think you have to either buy it or you have to find it. You both find the key. You open the door. Then you start walking together and eventually fight like a final boss and you beat the game. It is a very short game. I want to say when I beat it, uh, man, I think we beat it in maybe an hour at, at most. It was an hour, hour and a half. And that was like our second time playing it because the first time we weren't figuring it out as quickly. But it was really, really good. And, uh, and it's awkward. I mean, the, the box art's incredible. You got this skeleton who is surprisingly really happy to be chained up. <laughs> I'm trying to get that glare out of here. He's not too upset. That dog's pretty happy. Snake, you know, everything's pretty happy um, in this world. Uh, but yeah, so it was just really fun. Double Dungeon, it's uh, it's one of the only complete-in-box turbo games I have right now because I don't do a lot of turbo collecting. But that game really left a, you know, a, a pretty good permanent spot in my collection for me, so I really like that one a lot. Um, but anyway, thank you, everybody, as always, for watching. If you caught this uh, audio only on iTunes or on SoundCloud, please, please, please hop over to YouTube and, and like us there and go over to Twitch and follow us there twitch.tv slash the drop rate or youtube.com slash the drop rate that will all get you to our channels or you can go to DropRate.life that will also connect you right to our youtube channel uh and you can like us on there subscribe and everything uh because we're doing a ton of these videos all the time i'm usually breaking up the podcast in video form you can kind of get a little more of the visual aids obviously with the double dungeon game but also some of the video and stuff that i show in the podcast that the audio only kind of misses If you are listening to this on YouTube and you like listening to podcasts in their full, you know, audio only form, you can find me on iTunes by going, uh, looking for Game Talk Radio. So that's, that's, that's my contribution to the drop rate site. And uh, so Game Talk Radio or SoundCloud and go to Game Talk Radio. Thank you everybody as always for watching and listening. I so much appreciate it. You're all great. We'll talk to you again next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye.